This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Actually, Lee, it'll be mostly my favorite college president that will be doing most of the talking, the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry R. Alexis de Tocqueville is a Frenchman who came to the American in the 1830s and very perceptive guy, wrote an important book called Democracy in America. It's a picture of America at the time. And he makes this contrast, and it's really a contrast between constitutional rule and other kinds of rule. He notices, he says, and remember, he'd never been here before, never seen anything like this. The European generally submits to a public officer because he represents a superior force. In other words, why do you obey the law? Because the guy walking up to you in a uniform can hurt you if you don't. But to an American, he represents a right. In other words, you see somebody working for the government, you think they work for you. They're here to defend our rights. Now what follows this statement? That's a stark statement to read, right? Anybody afraid of the government today? If you're in business and you're regulated, are you afraid? Tokyo continues. In America, it may be said that no one renders obedience to man, but to justice and to law. And then there's a kind of transition in the paragraph. If the opinion which the citizen entertains of himself is exaggerated, is it at least salutary? He unhesitatingly confides in his own powers, which appear to him all sufficient. Now, that's a little bit derisory, right? We think more of ourselves than we should. I don't know what's the better alternative. I think it would be best of all if we could think of ourselves as we should. But would you rather have a citizen body that thinks less of itself or more of itself? And this gives rise to something, this thinking that we're in charge, according to Tocqueville. When a private individual meditates an undertaking, however directly connected it may be to the welfare of society, he never thinks of soliciting the cooperation of the government. But he publishes his plan, offers to execute himself, courts the assistance of other individuals, and struggles manfully against all obstacles. By the way, you know how this college comes to be here? It's in a little town in Michigan, founded in 1844. When it moved here to this town, Hillsdale, in 1853, this uh, fella who worked here for 50 years named Dunn rode his horse into town, and he went to the local hotel. There were two, actually. He went to both of them, and he said, went to the hotel here, and he said, I'm here in town. I want to move a college here to town. I would like to speak with the leading citizens interested in education. And they gathered, and they gathered in City Hall. Now, they used City Hall, but nobody thought that the government should build a college. And they sat and negotiated for about two hours, and the guy said, this guy Dunn said, look, this is going to be an abolitionist college. We don't like slavery. This is going to be a freedom college. We like the American Constitution and the principles of the Declaration. And this is going to be a Christian college. We like the Christian faith here. We dedicated our oldest building on the 4th of July. We're not going to have any distinctions of race. He said all that. If you want a college like that, we'd like to move the college here. You got to give us some dough. He asked him for 10 grand. 
And that's a lot of money back then. And the city fathers of Hillsdale, we ended up coming here because they were shrewd cusses and they said, uh, they went away and deliberated and thought and they said, okay, we'll give you $15,000, but you have to match it. And Dunn got off on his horse and went off and did that. It took him two years. He rode all over Wisconsin. He'd preach on a Sunday and he'd get people who came to the service to, to give $5, $3, $2. We still have a list of the names, the first donors to Hillsdale College here at the college. It's a really cool story, really great story. And the story is consequential for our union because, you know, we had 500 young men go fight for the Union Army in the Civil War. And nobody made them do that. We didn't even have any military training here then. We don't really have it here now either. Still have a lot of kids going in the military. Why'd they go? A college that teaches the meaning of the United States of America? That's a public service. Madison and Jefferson said you can't understand your country if you don't study the things we teach here. We teach them here in part because they said that. One of those things, the first thing that made America and the rule of law in America, as this foreigner Tocqueville noticed, is the Declaration of Independence. And this is its story. The situation in which the Declaration of Independence is written, it is written in an atmosphere of the threat of execution. There is a warrant out for the arrest of everyone who signed that document. And it's, the warrant is not given to a lawful civil officer, it is given to a general. He's told to use his army and find these men. The full fury of British wrath will be unleashed even if it means complete war. A cold war had been simmering underneath the surface and threatened to become a hot one. In 1765, Britain violated the rule of law. Their Stamp Act imposed direct taxes on the American colonies, even though the English Bill of Rights prevented taxation without representation, which the colonies didn't have, and over a decade of chaos ensued. Remember the king of England, who was a nice man, by the way, and a, and a humble man for a king, was referred to by the title majesty. And it took the founders, a lot of them, for a long time thought, the only way you can have stability is if some family is appointed to rule. And so the king, the king was a very humble man, but when his son wanted to marry a noble, but of lower station than the king's family, he said, princes may not marry subjects, ever, no matter what your heart says. So the point is, that's the world. That's what's known. A world that enough of them were now open to the possibility of rejecting and stepping into the great unknown. Enough so that 12 of the 13 American colonies meet in 1776 as a protest government and for something that they called a Congress. They named it the Congress. It was called the Continental Congress. They hadn't seen the continent. 
didn't until Lewis and Clark came back to report to now President Thomas Jefferson. The farthest west that they had seen at that point was Kentucky, and a President Thomas Jefferson wasn't a thought on anyone's mind, even his own. In fact, the federal government was so relatively insignificant to him and to the lives of citizens in that era that Jefferson didn't even list President of the United States on his tombstone. Instead, he decided to list the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom the founder of the University of Virginia, my alma mater, and this next thing, this manifesto that his peers in the Continental Congress tasked him with writing. They thought carefully about it. Jefferson was chosen because everybody knew he could write and knew he had the ideas, and he was young. 33 years old, and they gave him two weeks to do it just two weeks to write the declaration of independence the writing assignment of a lifetime folks at 33 years old talk about a tough project and when we come back we're going to continue to tell the story of the declaration of independence on our rule of law series and you're listening to a very unusual college president very few in this country and talk about our founders and our founding this way. And Hillsdale College is a terrific place to learn all the fine things in life, all the important things in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. You know, I recall hearing a David McCullough speech there. And McCullough started off the speech saying, just remember that nothing had to happen the way it happened, that men change outcomes. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and lives were at stake and in the balance. And when we come back, more of this great story about our founding. Again, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast and send the link to some friends if you can. And we continue with the story of the Declaration of Independence and the 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson being given just two weeks to write it. No pressure. Jefferson, holed up in a single, small, sweaty room, flies constantly buzzing around him. And yet, in spite of these worldly challenges, he drafted something that some believe the otherworldly could have only inspired. It says in a famous passage in the Declaration, He has sent among us a swarm of officials to harass our people and eat out our substance. It says that he has uh, 
sent foreign troops among us in no way answerable to us, to oppress us. He makes us pay for those troops. He taxes us without our consent. In other words, the government is now unlimited, can do whatever it wants, and that won't do. The opening of the Declaration of Independence has nothing to do with them. In fact, it demotes them. It's not our unique situation. It's not us, a special people, here to do a grand deed. It, uh, it begins universally and abstractly. When in the course of human events, means any old time, it becomes necessary for one people, means any old people, to dissolve the political bands that have connected with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. It's an act of obedience to a law that persists beyond the English law and beyond any law that they might make. So for them to be the particular people whose lives are at risk, and for them to be turning over an entire way of organizing society that had dominated for 2,000 years, and then for them to begin that way, it's very grand, but also you can't miss it, it's partly humble. It's, it's, we, the, these are the ways that people must comport themselves. We are going to do that. And if you will do that, British, we will get on. And if not, we will not. And we will be in the right because of that. What are these laws of nature and of nature's God that Jefferson writes of, that they say must be respected, that they say is above the British law? It's a beautiful phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God, but it's kind of a goofy, strange phrase too, not the type of language that we usually throw around. And most of us haven't really thought about it before either. But Dr. Arne is just the sort of guy who has. Nature means two things in this context. It means the thing itself. The cup is a cup. It has cupness about it. It makes it a cup. And there's lots of different cups, but you can see the cupness in all of them. So whatever the nature of a thing is, whatever it is specifically, the nature of the human being is to reason. It is the animal that can reason. This human thing is a very distinctive thing. And, and it can't be treated like a pig. That's a famous historical example. One day, Stephen Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates made the claim, I just don't understand Lincoln's position because I can take my property and I can take my hog into Nebraska, then a federal territory, and the federal government will provide a government to protect that property, my hog and my other property, so why doesn't it do that for my property and the slave? And Lincoln responds beautifully and logically in a way that shows what these words nature and equality mean. It means we can't really treat the Negro the same way we treat the hog. Have you in the South, Lincoln says, ever been willing to do so much? The great majority South as well as North have human sympathies of which they can no more divest themselves than they can of their sensibility to physical pain. In other words, Lincoln is saying, if you look at a man and you look at another man and one of them is black and one of them is white, they look different. But if you put a pig in the picture, now all of a sudden they look the same because they are the same. And that's the reason why you can't own them like their property. And he goes on to say, in the South, you in 1820 joined the North almost unanimously in declaring the African slave trade piracy 
and in saying that it would carry the death penalty to engage in the slave trade. But Lincoln goes on to explain, but it wasn't, you didn't think it was wrong or illegal or should be punished by death to bring a wild horse or a pig from Africa into the country. You can go trap them and bring them here all you want to. And the point is, Lincoln is saying, you know, and also you can't help but know that they're not the same thing as these horses and these pigs that you trap. In fact, Thomas Jefferson says in one of the last important letter he ever wrote in his life that what the Declaration of Independence means is that some men are not born with saddles on their backs nor others booted and spurred to ride them by the grace of God. Now that's uh, powerful, right? Lincoln says you can sooner ignore a great physical pain pretend it doesn't exist, then you can pretend that you don't know the difference between a man and a pig. Because you do know it. And you can't help but know it. That's one reason why the Nazis would load people on cattle cars and ship them off to factories for their slaughter, just like slaughterhouses. But they didn't really like to talk about that very much. They were always trying to cover it up, right? And when they were later, after the war, when they were arrested, didn't stand up and say, yeah, I did that and that was really great. That's not the way they talk. Why? Because they know. And if you know that, then you know that a fellow 6,000 miles away in London, born of a great family, doesn't get to rule you as if you were a hog to take your property and lead you around and do whatever you want to. That's what the Declaration of Independence means. And by the way, the point about this is that these arguments from nature and equality, they are self-evident. What self-evident means is saying all men are created equal. You can actually turn that word men in that proposition into the word X. You can put the word cup there. You can put the word dog there. You can put the word pig there. You can put the word angel there. Because each being of a kind is equal in respect to the thing that gives it its nature. And human beings are the rational creatures and unlike hogs, responsible for their actions and cannot therefore be governed without their consent. Their consent to even come together as a community and decide to be ruled by a set of minimal common laws that are theirs. Laws that they made and aren't some morning whims of some king as mankind was ruled before then. And then, of course, there's the dramatic conclusion to the Declaration of independence. The end of it is a legal pronouncement that now we're going to be an independent country. A pronouncement, mind you, sealed by the people in the room there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, mutually pledging to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. It's a wartime, a battlefield proclamation. Thomas Jefferson is promising John Adams, and John Adams is promising Thomas Jefferson back Everything we've got is at stake in this. We're not going to quit on this thing. We're signing an act of treason. How many of them would lose their lives? Would any 
lose their fortunes, and most importantly, would any lose their sacred honor? That story next in The Rule of Law. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.